Amen. Well, would you turn with me in your Bibles uh, to the book of Romans. We find ourselves here in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and I'll be preaching on verses 9 through 11 today, but I'd like us to begin our reading in uh, chapter 5, verse 1. So 5, verses 1 through 11, and would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired and errant and infallible word. Romans chapter 5, this is the very word of God. Let's give it our attention. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by this faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That sends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. A couple of years ago now, there was a rather horrific viral video that was making the rounds on social media. It was a video that was taken from the lobby of a hotel in New York City, and it caught on video this large thug of a man uh, violently attacking an older Asian woman in a racial hate crime on the street in broad daylight. And I will not uh, describe the horror of the attack uh, more than just to say that it was the kind of brutal, stomping violence that you wish you could unsee. What was equally appalling is that in that video, there were three men, one of them a hotel security guard, and they stood by and they did nothing. Not only did they do nothing during the attack, they did nothing after the attack. They did not rush to her aid. 
They did not show mercy of any kind. Instead, with a seeming cold indifference, they simply closed the hotel lobby doors. Like the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan, they passed by, as it were, on the other side of the street. And as this video made the rounds, people were rightly outraged. Outraged not only by the cruelty of the attack, but they were outraged by the cold indifference of these men in the face of something so evil. How could they not intervene? How could they not be outraged themselves? The sight of suffering and evil should provoke a wrath that burns with righteous indignation. In commenting on this event, James Williams wrote, We bear the image of the God who is never indifferent towards sin. He is never indifferent towards sin, and He responds with wrath at injustice. Indifference towards sin might sound like a sinner's paradise, but the results would actually be terrifying. Evil would run rampant, and there'd be no one to intervene. We'd lie helplessly on the sidewalk while God shuts the doors and tunes out our cries for help. You see, though most people hate the idea of a God of wrath, the fact that every act of evil incites His wrath is actually something that we should celebrate. Imagine if God was not angry with injustice. Imagine if He was not angry with sin. Imagine if He stood by cold and indifferent. Would that God be a God worthy of worship? Now, I think that part of the reason that people despise the idea of a God of wrath is that we so often imagine that God's wrath is like our own, that He is just like a person who flies off the handle every now and again in a raging fit of fury, that God is volatile and capricious like we are. But as one commentator has said, God's wrath is not a cranky explosion. It is His settled opposition to the cancer that is eating out the insides of the human race. That's how we should think about the wrath of God. It's not a cranky explosion. It is God's settled, unchanging, steady opposition to the sinfulness of sinners. God is not the indifferent security guard who sits idly by the injustices of the world. He is the God of perfect righteousness. He is the God whose justice and righteousness move Him to intervene in justice and judgment. That is the only God that Paul knows. The living and true God of heaven and earth. The God who will judge the world in righteousness. Who says that He will render to each one according to their due. For those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be, hear it, wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. That is the reality. Another reason I think we don't like the wrath of God is because we know we deserve it. We know 
that we are not just the victim in the video. We are not just the fragile old woman kicked to the curb in need of rescuing. We are the thugs. The sad fact is that we are all too often like that violent attacker. This is the way that Romans describes us. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. When God steps in, He steps in against us. And there's no better picture, no better proof of the wrath and justice of God, no better picture of His fury than the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is God's own picture of His wrath and justice poured out against sin. It's at the cross where God steps in. And I've wanted to begin here by reminding you first of the righteousness and justice of God's wrath because it's really the necessary context for our understanding and appreciating the benefits that come to us in our justification. Our text this morning begins, Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Now, over the past several weeks, we have been considering these wonderful benefits that come from our having been justified. The first week, we considered the first three of these benefits, that we have peace with God, that we have access to this glory in which we stand, that we have hope in the glory of God. And then last week, we considered two more, that God is shaping us through our sufferings and that He is sustaining us through His love. And now today, we come to consider these final three, namely, that we are saved from the wrath of God that we are reconciled in our relationship to God, and that having all of this, we rejoice in God Himself. And you'll notice that as we go through this text, you'll notice that each of these is marked by the words, much more, or more than that. Much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. Much more now that we are reconciled. More than that. We rejoice. It's like there is this sort of ever-increasing effulgence as he moves from what are beautiful realities in and of themselves to what are even more beautiful realities, much more beautiful benefits. And so today, as we look at this passage, then, those will be our main points. We'll look first at the way in which we are saved from God's wrath in verse 9. Secondly, at how we are saved for reconciliation in verse 10. And then finally, how we are saved for rejoicing in verse 11. Saved from wrath, saved for reconciliation, and saved for rejoicing. Now, if you look at verse 9 with me, you'll find this first beautiful inference. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Now before we can even begin to consider the inference that Paul lays out here, we need to say something again about justification. Paul has, for now, a couple of chapters been unfolding this marvelous doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
It's one of the many reasons that I wanted to preach through the book of Romans is because I wanted to, to speak to you about this beautiful doctrine of justification. But what does it mean to be justified? We've talked about this, but I'm going to remind you again that justification is a legal term. Uh, it's a forensic term. It is the declaration of God as judge. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. If in condemnation God declares that somebody is guilty and deserving of punishment, namely deserving of the wrath of God, justification is the declaration that someone is not guilty, but that they are righteous before God and that they are therefore not to be punished. But how is that possible? How is it possible that any sinner, somebody who is guilty, can be declared not guilty and righteous before God? As Paul says in, in chapter 4, how is it that God can justify the ungodly? Wouldn't that make God's justifying verdict simply a farce? And yet that is the wonder of the gospel, that God in His infinite wisdom and good pleasure has found a way to justify the ungodly through faith in Christ. And that way is given in summary form here. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood. Those are important words. That our justification is by the blood of Christ. That is by the blood of Jesus which was poured out and shed for us on the cross. And by the way, when you read those words, by His blood, you are not meant to think of His blood in some sort of magical way, as if there was something unique or special about the blood of Jesus. I remember when I was in high school, uh, we had a sort of a substitute teacher in one of my Sunday school classes at the time, and she taught us that Jesus' blood was different and unique from the blood of everybody else. And she made these rather strange and sort of pseudoscientific claims about the uniqueness of the blood of Jesus that supposedly made it saving and healing. It reminded me of the way they talk about Anakin Skywalker in Star Wars, right? With this high level of midi-chlorines in his blood or something. No. Jesus is not a superman like that. There are all kinds of problems with that kind of teaching, not the least of which is, is the way in which it destroys the Bible's teaching about Jesus as the God-man, or what we call the hypostatic union. There is no confusion of the two natures, the divinity and the humanity, in the person of Jesus. Jesus' humanity is truly and fully human. His divinity is truly and fully divine. But they are not sort of mixed together into some sort of third thing. His blood was just ordinary blood. There was nothing unique or special about the blood itself. When we read that we have been justified by His blood, what we are meant to understand by those words, by His blood, is very simply, by His death. That is what the words by His blood mean. 
Now, don't get me wrong. To say that there is nothing special or unique about the actual physical blood of Jesus is not to say that there is nothing special or unique about Jesus himself or the death of Jesus. There certainly was. And it's the whole reason we can speak about being justified by his blood, that he is the God-man. He is both fully God and fully man. And that as a man in his humanity... Unlike you and me, and every other human person who has lived, Jesus was both perfectly sinless and perfectly righteous. If you want to talk about the uniqueness of Jesus, we should speak about it in terms of his moral qualities as a human. That not only did he never do anything wrong, he never sinned, He never transgressed any of God's laws, but he only ever did everything right. He obeyed all of God's commands. He loved his father with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. And the beauty of the gospel is that this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, offered up his perfect, obedient life as a sacrifice for sinners a life which, as the God-man, has infinite value. And God was pleased to accept his life in exchange for the life of sinners. And even as he accounted our sins to Christ and he treated Christ as though he were a sinner, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So he accounts to us the very righteous perfections of Jesus. He treats us as though we were righteous in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is all contained in those simple words that we are justified by his blood. That is what this first glorious inference is based on. But we have to get that part right. We have to get justification right if we're to appreciate the inference that he draws from it. And here is the inference. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. What he infers from the fact of our justification is that we shall be saved from God's wrath. And here, when he speaks about the wrath of God, he's talking about the wrath and judgment of the last day. It's that same wrath that Paul spoke about in chapter 2 when he warned that because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There is a coming day of wrath when God's righteous wrath and judgment are going to be revealed. Now, appreciate the logic of what Paul is doing here. If while we were sinners, Christ died for us, and if by his blood he satisfied all of that wrath of God against us, justifying us, then we will surely be saved from his wrath on that final day. That is a beautiful blessing of being justified, is that you do not have to fear God's wrath on the day of judgment. That's why I often like to say that Justification is like the verdict of the last day being brought forward into the present. 
that final verdict has already been declared. And you may know as surely as you are trusting in Christ that you will be saved from God's wrath in that day. There is simply no wrath left for you. If you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, there is no more wrath for you. All of that wrath against your sins has already been poured out on the head of your Savior. So that when we speak about God saving us in the gospel, we might speak of many things. We might speak of His saving us from sin, speak of, us, of His saving us from hell. We might speak of Him saving us from ourselves. But principally, do you know what He saves us from? He saves us from Himself. In the gospel, God saves us from Himself. He saves us from the righteousness of His own wrath. And that brings us to the second benefit to be considered today. And that is that we are not only saved from His wrath, but we are saved for reconciliation. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. It's not like verse 10 is saying something that's entirely new, something entirely different from what is said in verse 9. But Paul is here recasting that same beautiful truth in different terms. Now he's recasting it in terms of our being reconciled to God and saved by His life. And here we get a, a more full and complete picture of what God has done for us in Christ. And the first part of that fullness is bound up in this idea of reconciliation. I trust you understand at least a little bit about what it means to be reconciled. To be reconciled simply means the restoration of a broken relationship. I suppose that many of us have gone through the painful process of losing a close friend. Something happened that maybe caused a breach in our relationship. Somebody did something, somebody said something that the relationship just couldn't recover from, that put an end to the friendship. I hope that a few of you have at least known the joy of reconciliation, of having that broken friendship restored where you can trust one another again. This, the Greek word that's used here uh, sort of speaks of that same kind of thing. It's used in social context. It's used to speak about the restoration of a relationship between two friends. It's used to speak about the restor restoration of a relationship between uh, a husband and wife. But it's also and, and most often used in political context to describe the cessation of hostilities between two warring nations. Here, of course, Paul is describing the hostility and enmity that exists between God and man, between the Creator and His creatures, between that one who called all things into existence and then fashioned man from the dust of the ground, made him in his own image, only to have those image bearers rebel against him. And there are three remarkable things that he says about this reconciliation. First is very simply that it was God the offended party who sought us out. 
We were the offending party. And it was not us that repented and took the first steps towards God. It was God who took the first steps toward us. And not only did God seek us out, but He sought us out while we were still enemies. While we were yet warring against Him. While we yet had no intention of laying down our rebellion. Even while we were yet enemies, God did this. And God did this by the death of His Son. The initiative on God's part was costly. The reconciliation required more than simply a readiness to forgive. It required the satisfaction of His own wrath. In the Gospel, God not only saves us from Himself, in the Gospel, God saves us by Himself. He saves us from Himself and He saves us by Himself because unless He saves, there will be no saving. And the inference that Paul draws from that is if God has done this, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. What does that mean, to be saved by His life? Well, I think it means very simply that the same Savior who died for you now lives for you. That so often when we talk about the gospel, we talk about it only in the past tense. We talk about it only in terms of what Jesus did in his life on earth and in his death on the cross and in his resurrection. And we forget that Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning and living for us, bearing the marks of the cross. That same Savior who died, the author of Hebrews says, ever lives to make intercession on our behalf. To hear us, to protect us, to sanctify us, to save us. And the inference is once again drawn out uh, from the impossibility of the contrary. If God reconciled us to Himself through the death of His Son while we were yet enemies, if He did that, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. It's not just what Jesus did for me. It's what Jesus continues to do for me. And what He will continue to do for all of His people until that final day when He at last brings us into His presence. And He does this because the enmity has been ended. Because we've been made friends. We've been reconciled through His blood. And that brings us then to our final point here. One final benefit of our justification, one final blessed inference, one final more than that, that we are saved for rejoicing. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We read those words, more than that, and we're wondering can there really be anything more? Can there be more than that? More than being justified? More than being saved from the wrath of God? More than being reconciled through His Son? More than being saved by His life? More than that? And Paul says, yes, there's more than that. 
More than that is now you rejoice or you boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We now joyfully boast in God. Think of it. We who were once haters of God, we who were enemies of God, we who were once at enmity with Him, now actually find such profound pleasure and delight in God that we joyfully boast in Him. What takes a person from hating someone, despising them, detesting them, to joyfully boasting in them? I couldn't help but think of one of my favorite books and the transformation of uh, Elizabeth Bennet in Pride and Prejudice as she goes from detesting Mr. Darcy and despising him to then loving him and respecting him and even boasting in him. That on such a more profound level is what the gospel does. God takes us from being despisers of him to being those who love him and boast in him. More than that, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He saves us from himself. He saves us by himself. And he saves us for himself. God saves us for friendship and for fellowship with him. John Murray put it like this in his commentary. He says, This glorying knows no restraint and cannot be too exaggerated. It is not only that God is the object of this glorying or this boasting. It is not only that He is the ground of it. It is that in union and fellowship with Him as our own God that the glorying is conducted. We have been united to Him, reconciled to Him, have friendship with Him, and now glory in Him. And we have every reason for glorying and boasting, not in ourselves, but in the God that justifies the ungodly, that this God came in righteousness to save us from his own wrath. The God who reconciles us to himself so that we have friendship and fellowship. The God who saves us from himself, who saves us by himself, and wonder of wonders, even saves us for himself. How do you think about the wrath of God? Do you hate the wrath of God? Or do you actually believe that the wrath of God is something to be celebrated? That one day God is going to set everything right that is wrong with the world. And more than that, God has already stepped in and intervened so that you do not need to fear that final day. But you can celebrate it now because God's wrath has already been poured out on the head of His Son, Jesus Christ, for all those who have faith in Him. We who once detested and despised God and despised the idea of His wrath can now even come to celebrate it in the gospel. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You are the God of righteousness and justice. That You are even the God of wrath and fury against sin. We thank You that we might even rejoice in this attribute of yours for we know that it is good and holy that it is not capricious and volatile like our wrath and lord we thank you and praise you and wonder at the gospel that reminds us 
that because we've been justified, we are saved from your wrath. Lord, and we pray that you would save all of your people from your wrath. And we pray that you would help us to be ministers of the gospel. That we would not avenge ourselves, as the word says, but that we would leave vengeance to the wrath of God. And that instead we would be kind and good to those, even to those who have victimized us. And that we would seek that the gospel might bring them into that condition of being saved from your wrath. Lord, help us to wonder and glory in who you are. And so we pray that you would work these things into our hearts by your Holy Spirit, for we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read to you again the words of that last verse of that hymn we've just sung. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. If you are in Christ, indeed, you are reconciled to God and you hear his pardoning voice. And as surely as we hear his pardoning voice in the gospel, we hear it in this visible proclamation of the gospel. Because here, in the bread and in the wine, we are reminded once again of how God has reconciled us to himself. It is through the broken body of our Lord and through his shed blood that we have been justified, that we have been reconciled, that we have peace with God, that we can now with confidence draw nigh to his throne of grace and by the Holy Spirit cry, Abba, Father. And so if that is true of you today, you should draw nigh to this table. You should come ready to hear God's pardoning voice because that's what God does in the Lord's Supper. He speaks to us again that word of peace and pardon. Now, that word is spoken to those who have placed their faith in Christ. The Lord's Supper does not belong to everyone. It belongs to those who are trusting in Christ. And so if you are trusting in Christ, if, if you belong to His church, if you're a baptized communicant member in the church of Jesus Christ, then you are welcome to come to this table and to hear those words of peace and of pardon. But if you're not, let me encourage you, even though you might let these elements pass you by today, God is here today and He has spoken in His Word. And He promises that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if you desire to be saved from the wrath of God, if you desire to be reconciled to Him and to be able to rejoice in Him and know that you have peace with Him, uh, then though you might let these elements pass, in your heart, by faith, call out upon the name of the Lord. And if you want to know what it means to be His disciple, to belong to His church, then please, I'd love to speak with you about that. But if you already belong to the church of Christ, uh, and you already have heard that pardoning voice, then come today with confidence and hear the Lord speak to you again and absolve your fears through his body and blood. Let's pray as we take these ordinary elements and ask that the Lord would set them apart for this holy use. Lord, as we draw near to your table, we know we, we don't have any business drawing near on our own, and yet 
with confidence we draw nigh because we have heard your pardoning voice speaking to us in the gospel. And we have responded in faith and in repentance and in love. And we rejoice in you and we would come and we would take these elements from your hand today. Take the bread and take the wine and even as we eat it, to know that our souls are being nourished and fed. And Lord, we pray that you would help us then uh, to do this with faith and confidence. And Lord, we pray that to that end, you would set apart these ordinary elements now for this holy use, uh, that, you, that, that we as we receive them in faith, uh, that we might have Christ and all of his benefits of our redemption uh, sealed to our hearts. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.